welcome to the Stuff Podcast with me, Toby Shapshak, and the better dressed editor, Craig Wilson. So the biggest news that has hit South Africa in a long time is the so-called Master Deeds data leak. And this is huge and significant and really deeply, deeply worrying for all of us. What basically has happened is that a database containing some 60 million South Africans' personal details, both living and deceased, ID numbers, date of birth, sex, LSM demographic, previous earning histories, employments, anything that would be relevant to someone trying to sell you a house uh, or check your creditworthiness for such a sale was discovered on the internet. And, And what's involved is deeply, deeply scary. The facts of it are it was a server being hosted by a holding company called Jigsaw Holdings, which owns three property brands, AIDA, Realty One, and ERA. And it seems like someone compiled this database using all living and deceased South Africans, people who could be living overseas, put it on an unsecure server in such a way that it could be easily indexed, read, and downloaded. And it, and it was uh, anything from 18 gigabytes, we've heard one estimation, to the 30 gigabytes, 27 gigabytes that uh, Troy Hunt, the famous security researcher who has the website haveibeenpwned.com received. He received this in March this year and he only started looking at it in middle of October. It could have been there from as early as 2015 given the date on the file that Troy Hunt received and what we also know is that this information was compiled by Jigsaw Holdings companies and a joint venture with another data company called Dracor Data Services. Dracor said they had a six-month relationship with Jigsaw and they do what they call data enrichment which is if you've only got some of the details for someone you can add in all the rest of them but basically what we have is a database containing all of the deeply personal private information of all South Africans all of the information you would use to open a bank account or get a credit card it is shocking and scary and all of that information has been on the internet for anybody to steal for we don't know perhaps up to two years if not longer so by far the most concerning data breach of South Africa's history it's on a scale equivalent to the Fairfax breach in America where 145 million Americans details were released Yahoo recently said that when they were hacked a few years ago not one billion as they originally said but all three billion of their accounts were uh, hacked and leaked and it just shows us the kind of terrifying world we live in where all of our information can be collected collated put into a database by somebody else without our consent without our permission and put in an insecure way on the internet in such a way that anyone could access us and and, and get to us. It it is deeply, profoundly worrying. There is legislation that would prevent this, that would fine people up to 10 million rand, but the Protection of Personal Information Act, POPI, is not 
properly promulgated and will only be uh, effective probably early next year so the people involved can effectively get off scot-free. Well, I mean, this is part of the worrying, uh, the most worrying sort of part of it is that first that this information could just be put out there, second that it took so long for anyone to realise it was there, uh, and third that, as you point out, there are likely to be no meaningful uh, repercussions. And, I mean, this, I guess, speaks to the problems of uh, that we have in a lot of fronts uh, in South Africa, and I worry even when Poppy is enacted that we have to wonder how effective government is going to be or how effective the police are going to be uh, at enforcing it. You know, you speak to people who, for example, have had iPhones stolen, who've gone to the police with find my iPhone uh, and can show them, you know, this is where my, my device is right now. Um, but uh, they get nothing, you know, no real support. And I think part of the problem is that from uh, the powers that be, there's a distinct lack of understanding about the severity of this, let alone how to meaningfully uh, enforce any regulation, as good as it may be and as well-intentioned as it may be. You know, do you think we're actually going to see this meaningfully enacted and, and followed up on, you know, if we see a breach like this happen again? I mean, perhaps I'm just being a cynic. but. No, I, I think that the chances of us having to worry about this kind of thing again is pretty high um, because the, it, it's like a guilt-free crime. You know, a South African journalist working at the BBC phoned me from London to ask me all about this when the story broke and said to me, are the police investigating? And I just laughed and said, hello, Kandler. You know, the Gupta leaks have, have basically laid bare a shadow gangster state running our country, choosing cabinet ministers. You know, Sean the Sheep, the head of prosecutions, has done absolutely nothing about it. What would give you... What are the chances that this even uh, features on uh, exactly. any sort of important government discussions? Sure. And, and what's even more scary is we just don't know who had access to this file. I mean, the network administrator had no idea people were putting down anywhere between 18 and 27 gigs of traffic off their network. Which is mind-boggling. No, no one noticed that this was leaving the system. I mean, what it must have done to their traffic over the few days. But, but yeah, I mean, I guess the, the next thing people are going to say is, you know, well, what can they do uh, what can they do to protect themselves? And I guess we just have to be, uh, you know, extra vigilant. I think we're already fairly vigilant when it comes to things like identity theft. But, you know, check your bank statements. Look out for unusual transactions. Um, I'm sure we've all had some sort of instance. I was signed up for an insurance uh, thing once that, you know, I certainly hadn't signed up for. And it turned out that this was just a, it was a fairly nominal fee a month, you know, maybe 80 or 100 rand. And I think a lot of people simply wouldn't notice it. But I picked it up, you know, got hold of the insurer. They reimbursed me and apologized profusely. But, but this is the thing is, you know, this sort of thing has become that much easier. And identity theft is already a massive problem. Um, and I guess, though, there's not much we can do other than be, be uh, vigilant and uh, outraged, even though uh, the outrage, unfortunately, isn't going to achieve very much. No, no certainly not. It's more likely that... Uh, the Nkandla money will be paid back or recouped. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is a deeply worrying state of affairs. And I suppose even more concerning to me is that willingly most people will put this kind of information about themselves 
online anyway. We give Facebook and Twitter and Google so much of our personal information without a second thought. I watch this all the time. People drive up to someone's office block. You get given a piece of paper. Yes. Um, and people write down their name, their phone number, their driver, their, their car registration and their ID number. I mean, that is an incredible amount of personal information that could be used to clone your identity. And they give it to somebody who stands outside on a piece of paper. There's no security. Absolutely. I, I'm always amazed at how many people write down their real ID number. I never do that. Sure. I don't even write down my real registration of my car. Well, and I know, and you're also reluctant to give anyone a copy of your ID. You know, Nothing. I won't. I won't. I won't store a scanned version of my ID or my passport on my on my laptop. I won't email them. I won't even email the numbers. And I've been banging this paranoia drum for years. People think I'm crazy, uh, but it, you can't be paranoid enough. Well, yeah, but arguably, of course, it doesn't matter because all that info is out there now anyway. Uh, disturbingly, you know, despite the best practice and despite the paranoia. Well, we can only hope that all of the various Rika and Fika things that we have to do that you need to verify your identity um, and that you have legal recourse if those steps aren't Mm -hmm. taken you have to do those and if people don't do those then it's deeply problematic to open an account Uh, luckily you can turn on two-factor authentication which Which I've done on every service on anything there's no way you can log on to Twitter or uh, email without some kind of verification and 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 that's what people have to be aware of do not allow your data to be so easily compromised by emailing your ID number mm, sure. to someone in an email. Email is the weakest form of, of security in the world. Anyone can peer into your email as we've discovered from all of the, the major leaks. Uh, also, don't use the same password for everything. Sure. If you can't remember your password, it is okay to write it down on a piece of paper. Just keep it somewhere locked, safe and secure. Don't store it on your computer in a folder or a, sure. a Word document. Well, Use a, saved, use a saved password password. Uh, management app, right? LastPass, yeah, last OnePassword. Like. One All of these are great. You can use them to remember stuff. Write down that put master password in case you're afraid you're going to mm. lose it. Well, I think the other key one also is for people to just, if you, you know, if you just, if nothing else, use different ones for your email, your online banking, and your social media. Because the thing what people don't realize too is you, if one of those is compromised and the rest are similar, Absolutely. you know, it's so easy, particularly if you can pose as the person to get those other services reset yeah. and if you're not careful you can lose access to all of these key things and you know really keeping those those three or four services uh, separate and with, with complex passwords using a password manager is just really uh, really basic um, good practice indeed but listen even while we're on the subject of data security and security in general we've discovered that it turns out the wi-fi <laughs> codes that we've all been using the protocols we've all been using thinking we're safe and secure are actually themselves compromised sure this is the uh, the wpa2 standard that you know most uh, wi-fi routers use and uh, someone's discovered a vulnerability in this that suggests that uh, all the wi-fi we've been using all along may be compromised um, and these are the things, I mean, you talk about the sort of 
uh, sort of terrifying world we live in. I mean, this is remarkable. There's something we've been relying on for uh, for decades and uh, just assumed that it's fine. And then someone comes around and shows us that, in fact, it isn't. And I think this speaks to other good practice generally, which is, you know, using things like VPNs if you're going to use public Wi-Fi networks. I mean, it always blows my mind if I, you know, walking through the airport and I see someone, you know, doing their online banking and I just think, my oh, word, I hope you are not connected to the, the free um, Wi-Fi in the airport. You know, I think these sorts of practices are things that really a lot of us, I mean, even fairly tech-savvy people, are pretty complacent about and we don't think about, uh, you know, potential man in the middle attacks on public Wi-Fi and you know most all of the uh, the most security sensible people I know uh, just avoid it as a general rule you know they just don't use public Wi-Fi uh, for anything at all and I think you know, when it comes to these sensitive things it's it's really important to to you know be wary and to avoid things like your local coffee shops Wi-Fi because it is alarmingly easy for someone to set up uh, a router with the same um, the same uh, or, you know details the same name and logon details and to just do a man in the middle attack and just lift all of your your sensitive information as you go um, you know VPNs uh, there is some debate about how good they are uh, if your VPN is free you can be sure it's not particularly good any of the decent ones will cost you a few dollars a month and you want to look out for ones that also assure you they don't keep logs and I mean uh, frankly if you're really really serious about this you should also find a VPN that you can pay using something like Bitcoin or something that is less traceable than your standard bank account because any of these sort of steps along the way could uh, you know compromise you but um, this yeah, I think part of what we need to be doing too is teaching people some sort of basic good practice and some uh, to just be a little more aware because we all too often just assume that these services that work for us are uh, are secure when uh, you know the reality is uh, for the most part it couldn't be further from the truth. Indeed, I mean the other uh, important thing to remember is uh, restart your computer often do the updates the security patches whenever they come out definitely um, the security and, patches yeah and and if you have anything like baby cams or security monitors change the passwords from whatever the default change is the and password your router you know you know the home I mean, router one is another one as well people leave the admin admin as the default uh, know, login details know, and know. you know in the age of uh, growing connectivity and an ever more connected home and more connected devices you know these are really really the sort of basic practices in fact i mean root manufacturers should just force you to change the details when the uh, when the device is first set up well, it's always a compromise between ease of use and security, mm, isn't absolutely. it? And that's what, that's what it comes down to. People want convenience and ease of use when actually it means you could potentially be exposed to all of these things. I mean, more and more uh, stories about security coming out. There's a, there's a huge uh, cl- dark cloud swirling around Kaspersky internet security mm. and, and what's possibly uh, been happening with them. I've been using them very happily for years. I'm, I'm really hoping that there's nothing untoward involved in all of this because, you know, I am a real believer in 
in multiple levels of security, mm. two-factor authentication, running malware protection, uh, running a firewall, using VPN, all of these things are deeply and incredibly important. Well, so of course, Kaspersky's pushed back and said that uh, the allegations are uh, unfounded and it's going out of its way to provide transparency on its products and to try and counter these very damning sort of allegations that it was, uh, that it's uh, put put data at risk or been involved directly in uh, you know specific instances of malware so that's a that's a, of course a developing one we'll have to keep an eye on because Kaspersky does try very hard to position itself as the you know one of the last defenses against the sort of scourge of cybercrime yeah um, yeah although they have admitted they themselves were hacked at one point but they've been very transparent about it um, you know, this has been a very heavy and uh, <laughs> and and one would say depressing uh, episode of of the stuff podcast. But uh, we have a remarkably weird <laughs> story to end it on, which I'm going to let Craig run with. So, I mean, this has got to be the favorite thing that's come through my inbox this week, uh, if only for winning the award for weirdest email of the week. So the Ford Motor Company, you know, does all, like all major car manufacturers, does a lot of tests on its cars before they reach market, you know, and to test that things will last and and this sort of thing. So uh, this week I got an announcement from them saying that uh, German engineers had been tasked with designing what they're affectionately calling a robot which was a synthetic posterior designed to mimic the proportions and weight of, as they described it, a large man, uh, so that they could test the seats in the new Ford Fiesta and see just how well they'd endure the average sort of use of a decade. So what they have is a robotic bottom that sits on and gets off and sits on and gets off the seats the equivalent of uh, the number of times a human would in a decade of use, and it's able to squash this testing down to three weeks. So imagine that you're an engineer and you get asked, but you go home and get asked what you did at work today, and you say, well, I helped design a robot butt. You can't make this stuff up, can you? It, it is quite remarkable. I wonder if they use it for testing of Ford Cougars. Oh. And you wonder about, you, you just hope that this sort of thoroughness uh, spills over into perhaps uh, more pressing concerns like safety and so on. But there you have it, the, uh, the robot from Ford. Uh, definitely the weirdest story of the week on my end. There you have it. That is the Stuff Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening. I'm Toby Shepshack and he is Craig Wilson and we'll be back with another episode next week uh, with hopefully a little bit of a lighter look at consumer tech and a little bit less doom and gloom. Indeed.